You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Cavalry Audio. I'm Clint Emerson, and welcome to Season 2 of Can You Survive This Podcast, where the interview is just as dangerous as the scenarios I put my guests through. From hostage situations to natural disasters, carjackings, active shooters, and more, if you're looking for the skills necessary to survive these situations, then this is the show for you. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Can You Survive This Podcast. Today I got an awesome guest. He grew up performing on stage and in commercials before selling all he had and running off to join the armed forces, where he served as a Navy SEAL for 10 years, earning distinction and experience in combat in places like Kosovo and Afghanistan, uh, returning home decorated and serving as a lead instructor over at BUDS, which is the basic underwater demolition SEAL training. It's also the screening and selection school for men aspiring to be Navy SEALs. Uh, he was drawn back into the world of film and television uh, thanks for coming on board, Joel Lambert. How you doing, buddy? Thanks for having me. Good to be here. Yeah, awesome, man. So, you know, uh, I always kick these things off a little rapid fire. It serves as a warm-up, uh, but uh, they tend to be uh, kind of fun. So I'm going to give you two choices. You pick the one you like the best, and then we'll circle back around to why you picked what you did. All right, you ready? Here we go. Uh, blonde or brunette? Brunette. <laughs> I'm sure your girlfriend's like, you better say brunette. Yeah, uh, blonde. <laughs> grenade attack or limpet attack? Ooh, I'd have to say limpet attack. My shoulders aren't so good anymore these days. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Uh, butt plug or ball gag? Oh, do I have to pick one of these? <laughs> it depends no, you on don't, what the ball but... gag's been, but I'll go with ball gag. <laughs> Yeah, it's just, yeah. Yeah, me too. I think I'd go with that one. F football or baseball? Baseball. Yeah. Uh, Push-ups or pull-ups? Pull-ups. Yeah. Uh, GPS or map and compass? Map and compass. Uh, bourbon or beer? Bourbon. I knew that one, I think. Pizza or hamburger? Pizza. 
Uh, drown to death or burn to death? Ooh, drown to death. <laughs> uh, Indian or Harley? Ooh, Indian these days. <laughs> All right. That's yeah, that was fast, man. You know your answers and uh we'll circle back around. So blonde or brunette? I'm guessing your girlfriend's a brunette. My girlfriend's a blonde. You're okay. So hopefully she's not gonna listen to this. <laughs> we can beep this part. I'm a brunette. So Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Um that's a good answer. I like that. I am the brunette, honey. That's what I meant. <laughs> exactly. Uh Grenade attack or limpet attack? Do you pick limpet attack? For those of you that don't know, a limpet basically is a is an underwater mine, if you will. Um, it's a it's an explosive device that you can put on the struts or on the shaft shaft I said shaft on the shaft of a, of a prop that is attached to a ship. So it's it's basically you can put these magnetic bombs onto a ship set the timing device, pull the pins, swim away, and then it'll uh, blow the ship. So limpet attack requires, you know, usually scuba. And uh, and then, of course, a grenade attack is what it is. You pull the pins and chunk grenades at people. And uh, so, yeah, limpet attack. Did you have any experience with that limpet attack or any of that type of stuff? Just the training stuff that we all did, swimming limpets in and putting them on the, the ships and breaking the chem light and shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's about it. But I just said that instead of grenades. Um, because who wants to do a dive operation, but I just don't think I can throw much anymore. (laughs) (laughs) I'm with you, man. I've got both my labrums are torn. So anytime I have to throw something, I I wake up the next morning, uh, definitely, uh, with like the arm just doesn't work for a day or so. Yeah, there you go. Sidearm. seems to be the way around it. Um, Okay. And then we did a butt plug ball gag. That one's just more just team guy, dark humor, but you picked the ball gag, which, uh, yeah, you're, I, I think I'd go with ball gag too, right? I don't know. It's kind of odd, but, um, okay, football or baseball, you picked baseball. Any reason? Grew up playing baseball. I never played football uh, when I was a kid, you know, through high school or junior high or anything like that. Um, I wasn't allowed to just because my dad played football. It destroyed his knees and his hips and everything, and he didn't want that for me. So, um, I played baseball instead, loved it. Um, but then of course ended up destroying everything in the seal teams anyway. So it didn't matter. <laughs> yeah, exactly. End up broken in the end. Yeah. Um, pushups, pull-ups, you pick pull-ups. Yeah. Just yeah. like pull-ups. Yeah. I, I'm with you. I think, uh, I mean, I, th- that one's a tough one for me because I, I tend to superset both of those together. Yeah. It's you great. know? Yeah, a pull exercise, a push exercise. You can do them pretty much anywhere in the world. Yeah. And uh, But, yeah, I think pull-ups are a favorite of almost every team guy I know. Like, I think we pride ourselves on old-school pull-ups. None of this CrossFit, like, rapid, whatever the hell they call those things. Yeah. But um, Pull-ups, <clears throat> we just crank tons of pull-ups. When I was a buzz instructor, that was one of the things I was known for was leading uh, badass pull-up workouts. And then another age-related thing. When you're doing pull-ups, you drop off the bar. You don't have to get up off the floor. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, getting up does get a little difficult, doesn't it? <laughs> it does exercise in and of itself. Yeah, yeah. That's fucking funny. Um, all right. GPS, map, and compass. You pick map and compass. Yeah, just old school. You got to know your map and compass. You know, your GPS is going to go out. GPS is, you know, anything with a battery. You know. The yeah, deal. yeah. You know? 
Well, technology, right? It's always going to, it's going to fail right when you need it. And so, yeah, I I agree. Having old school map and compass. I even still keep, you know, still um, Thomas guides in my vehicle. Especially with everything that's going on right now. I um, made sure that me and my blonde girlfriend both have atlases (laughs) in our (laughs) car. Yeah. Yeah. You just never know. And it's like, uh, I think it's, it's one of those skill sets that's just faded away over time because technology is just in your face so much. And, you know, kids and young adults just have no clue how to, how to even orientate a map properly so they know which way to go. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We'll probably dig into that a little bit when we yeah, talk about your map and compass. If you have that, that's going to take you a long ways. Yeah. Yeah. No doubt. Um, bourbon or beer. You pick bourbon. Yeah. Yeah. You got a favorite? Um, I've got a, a bunch. Um, I kind of have a little bit of a collection of uh, scotch whiskeys and, and bourbons, but I think probably the one that I Weller is really good. I like that a lot. And I think my favorite though is, um, is, uh, Willet. Willet, Willet. some incredible bourbons for a long time and they got super popular. And so then they sold their stock out instead of it being like eight or 12 year bourbon, all of a sudden you're being able to buy five or seven years. I'm like, okay, they're just getting rid of stuff because they're trying to meet demand. But mm-hmm. for about five or six years ago, maybe a little longer, seven or eight years ago, Willet bourbon was, um, incredible. Yeah. Are they out of Kentucky? They're out of Kentucky, I believe. Yeah. Because, I mean, that's really, is that still the big differentiator? Like, whiskey is Tennessee and bourbon is Kentucky, right? Okay. I haven't done my 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 whiskey tours yet since I moved to Tennessee, but uh, I will be. Rest assured. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You just got in there. I'm sure there's uh, Jack Daniels. Everybody's there, right? Everybody's there. I'm going to jump on the scooter here pretty soon and uh, do a little tour. Yeah. Awesome. Um Pizza or hamburger? Yeah, you picked the pizza. Yeah, my dog likes pizza. Dog? Your dog? What kind of dog you got? Rhodesian Ridgeback. Oh, nice. Rose, you want to him with you? Oh yeah, there he is. Uh, Those are beautiful dogs. Yeah, she's a good girl. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So she's a pizza lover like you, then, huh? Yep. (laughs) All right. Uh, Drowned to death or burned to death? You said drowned. I, I, I agree. Yeah. It just seems like, you know, I've heard that it really burns when you get the water in your lungs and stuff, but uh, it just seems like it could be a lot more peaceful. Burning doesn't seem like there's anything peaceful about that whatsoever. Although you might go into shock sooner and might check out quicker. So, yeah, it's hard to say. Right. But yeah, I think drowning is definitely a more appealing than uh, I guess it depends where the fire starts. Yeah. It starts at your feet and works its way up like old school when they used to, you know, tie you to the post and then just light you light a fire around you. <laughs> it's like that would suck. Yeah, he's, I, I don't know, man. Uh, yeah, fire. I just can't think of a scenario where it wouldn't absolutely suck. So although either one of those are pretty bad, I think um, the suffocation that would come with and the peace that comes that, um, you know, when, you're yeah. old, when you when you go a little too far under that nit- nitrogen narcosis kind of vibe that you get in the water yeah that might be yeah yeah that might be a more surreal way to kind of go right like yeah and it's appropriate for us you know yeah i like that okay so there you go everyone go uh yeah if you got one to pick pick drowning um all right indian or harley you got you know it was a tough one but you you kind of defaulted to indian 
which yeah, is my no, choice too. Quick. I've been a Harley guy my whole life. I own three Harleys. I know them inside and out and I love them. But uh, this is at this point, the Harley Davidson Motor Company, I think has massively thrown themselves under the bus. Uh, they got rid of the Dyna, which is really their only um, modern platform that was uh, making traction with younger people. Um, now they've got rid of the Sportster and made it some abortion. They had those street. Um, they've just done some really bad things, I think, that are not in line with the people who kept them in business for the last, you know, 50 years. Yeah. Um, and so, and then when I rode my first Indian, I got to say that it was everything that Harley should be as far as the geometry, the handling, the power from the engine, the, um, the computer system, the sound system on my, yeah. uh, I have a street glide, uh, was one of my Harleys and I've probably put five grand into its suspension and sound system and stuff, trying to get it to, to the level where a, a Indian starts off at that. You get a stock Indian with the, you know, the sound packages and everything on it. So absolutely. Um, I'm hundred percent in on Indian Harley has not done us any favors and has not, um, Harley's walked away from their core audience and is trying to create, recreate themselves, which I understand they're trying to survive in this world, but yeah, you know, I would rather spend my money on a company that's doing it right. Yeah. I'm with you. I, uh, was the first Indian you rode when we were in DC, when you, uh, you, you rented that one, the, it was like a red, a challenger, I think. Yeah. 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 That thing, I, I ended up getting a challenger as well. I got the dark horse all blacked out and, uh, and I had a street glide and it was just night and day. Like, you know, that I, 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 I know that I can reliably get from point A to point B now on that Indian, Whereas when we were in DC rolling thunder before COVID and we sat on 95 in gridlock, remember that, that Harley about died on, it did die on me several times, you know, it just couldn't handle the heat and, uh, it was just a pain in the ass, uh, yeah. to drive cross country. And, uh, after getting the challenger, I'm like, Holy crap, man. I mean, and plus it's a, they've put a lot of sport bike engineering into a cruiser, you know, into a bagger and, yeah, the that's Indian, where they that's where they win. The Indian doesn't have yet, but I think is is forthcoming. Is the just the aftermarket? The one great thing about right. Harley is they they've got one of the biggest aftermarkets in existence. Yeah, awesome. Because yeah. we all like to tweak our bikes, and Indian doesn't that's right. Yeah, but it's coming along. I think. Yeah, I think so. Um, I put those zombies on my bike and that thing is now obnoxiously loud. It. <laughs> it is so freaking loud, man. I think it just annoys the hell out of, you know, it makes Harley sound like Hondas now. Awesome. Yeah. Well, yeah. No, you're there, man. Yeah. Um, okay. So now let's get in more about you. So Joel Lambert. Uh, so yeah, you grew up in TV and film. I didn't know that. Uh, a lot of plays and things like that. And uh, always wanted to be an actor and then um, did a bunch when I was up through college and, and such. And that was kind of where I was making all my money when I was going through college. And then afterwards, before I dropped everything and went into the Navy. And so when I kind of got sucked back into that, it wasn't like it was an unknown thing or it wasn't like it was something I had no experience with getting with agencies and auditioning and, and go sees and all the stuff like that it was all a familiar world to me. So it was, it was something I thought I'd never go back to. Yeah. Uh, when I walked away from that 
and went into the Navy. I thought, you know, okay, here I'm going dark for life. You know, you know what you think when you're, <laughs> when yeah, you're, yeah. what it's going to be like. And uh, then it just didn't work out that way. And, you know, sometimes you just got to ride the horse the direction it's going. You know? Yeah. No, that's cool. And was there anything notable that you did in college that people would know about or a big commercial so or anything? Mostly, uh, I did a couple national commercials, but most of the stuff I did then was, uh, was uh, print work, commercial work, things like that. Uh, I didn't do anything that anyone would really know of at that point. Don't run away. More with former Navy SEAL Joel Lambert after the break. Well, I, I think that is a distinguishing feature between you and other SEALs. You know, there's a, for those of you listening, the West Coast is known, you know, nicknamed like Hollywood SEALs, right? <laughs> because they tend to do the SEAL thing for a little while and then, you know, end up either, you know, as, t- you know, tactical advisors in Hollywood, stuntmen, or even actors. And, uh, but you've got, a, you actually had a history in it before you yeah. became a Hollywood team guy. <laughs> yeah. You know, the thing is, is I, that, it's interesting you bring that up because it was something that I never thought I'd get back into. I completely left. Yeah. And then it just, it just kind of presented itself to me. It, it, it just, it was the way for me to go. Um, yeah. And then these days with everything, like you're talking about all the books and all the movies and all the guys getting involved in, in Hollywood, you're seeing a lot of dudes come in to the teams, looking at it as a stepping stone into politics or into, you yeah. know, whatever it might be that they want to do. And I feel kind of bad about contributing to that. But at the same time, all of us that that are doing this now, for the most part, I mean, there's, there are a few outliers that we won't name that I, I think aren't doing it properly, in my opinion. But we all got into the teams going to be team guys. That's all we wanted to do. We weren't trying to use it as a stepping stone to, you know, launch our political career or write a book or anything like that. It was we wanted to be team guys. We wanted to go kick doors with brothers and be part of something that was much bigger than ourselves. And then how this came out of it, it just seems to be a pure, cleaner kind of way. And now it seems to be that guys are using the teams as stepping stones and that's not, and you can't go into it like that. Right. (laughs) Yeah. I'm with you. I, yeah, I, I went in, I mean, I wanted to be a seal since I was what, 10 years old. I met the first one and I didn't know what they were until he told me some stories and I was sold and then went in and, you know, I was a a quiet professional, you know, for the 20 years I was in. And then, uh, when I got out, honestly, I sat in the squadron space, seeing these dumbasses on Fox news and CNN and all these team guys doing what they're doing. And I was sitting there going, these guys are fucking idiots. Like all of them. Right. I was just making, I was just kind of lump summing anybody that was doing anything on TV or writing books. I was (laughs) like, these guys are all fucking, you know, tools. Uh, but then, you know, I have become one of them. (laughs) So, you know, it was draw a distinct line in that. And I, I judge harshly on this as I'm sure all of us do, but I see guys that are doing stuff like you and a few other dudes writing books and stuff that have something to say and they have something to give. And I, I think that that is a very distinct line um, and some dead space between that and some of the guys who are writing other people's stories. I know, you know, I'm talking about yeah. or, um, going on Fox news and stuff and talking about shit. They don't know anything about. Right. Uh, I see, uh, but just because they're a Navy seal, they're on there. I went on uh, Banfield the last uh, several weeks ago. I was on her show three nights in a week talking about the Brian laundry manhunt. And because I know a lot about that 
And so mm-hmm. I was going on the news talking about escape and evasion and man tracking and all of that. But they've called me so many times to go on news shows, especially when my show was airing, just for random shit, you know, right. Navy SEAL. And this is something that kind of sort of brushes up against the tactical world. Do you have an opinion you want to tell the world about? No, because I'm not the guy for that. Right. Know your place. And when you bring what you are authentically to it and you're not riding, another thing that drives me crazy is when guys create their careers on the laurels of our collective reputation. Mm. You know, the way I felt about what I was doing in Manhunt is I'm out there actually doing it against foreign adversaries. It's all on me. And yeah, I'm wearing the trident and I'm carrying that reputation with me, but I'm doing it every day and it's completely on me. It's not like I'm doing it just because, hey, I'm a Navy SEAL and we're really good at this. And so, um, you know, here, just buy my book or watch my show because all the other guys who have really done real things, you know, in Afghanistan and Iraq, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's there's a difference, I think, in the in the what you bring to the table and how you you present yourself. Yeah, I think that's yeah, that's I think that's where I've ended up as well is, you know, it's all about staying in your lane and knowing, knowing your own left and right flanks and not thinking that, Oh, just like you said, you know, a news agency calls or a newspaper calls. And I'm like you, I turn more down than I accept because I don't want to, I don't want to venture outside my lane. My lane has been this kind of crisis management and, you know, uh, survival skill world. And it's fun. I like it. It entertains me. It, I get to learn something new all the freaking time. Um, especially, you know, I'm, I'm going to learn something from you in about two minutes when we start talking about manhunt. But, uh, yeah, I think it's important that no matter what you do, you got to maintain your own left and right flanks and try not to go outside of those because as soon as you do, it starts messing with your own credibility, uh, with the, with the core things that you do in life, you know? So all about authenticity, you know, authenticity and pure yeah. organic, what you bring to the table and you bring a lot to the table and have given a lot to the world through your books and through your podcasts and stuff like that. And it's all authentic, you know? So nobody's going to, nobody's yeah. going to, I mean, there's always going to be the team guys are like anybody who's on TV, they're going to be giving shit to you, but <laughs> yeah, you know, well, I tell people all the time, SEALs are, you know, 50% of them hate you and 50% of them love you. Yes. Uh, so. ones that hate you, come up to you when no one else is around and go, hey, if you ever need something, you know, if you ever, you know, if you, <laughs> yeah. need you want someone else to do a little work or do a little specialty extra gun handling, you know, give me a call. Yeah, exactly. Or, the, yeah, the, or they'll hit you up or they'll DM you and say, hey, can you hook me up with, uh, you know, <laughs> I'm like, uh-huh, yeah. I still, I, I, I remember telling people a long time ago, I said, whether you love me or hate me, I will still hook you up. I don't care. It's okay. It's all about family, man. That's right. Uh, so, okay, so you're in college. What, what was the, was there a, tr- what was the trigger for you that said, Hey, I'm going to leave kind of this acting and all this stuff I've been doing behind. And now I'm going to go become a Navy SEAL. What was that trigger? It was, um, I kind of understand it now, but at the time I didn't. And what happened was I just started having this nagging feeling that, um, I saw the road ahead of me. Um, and it was a wide boulevard with street lights and beautiful houses. And it just marched on and on and on. And this was life ahead of me. But off to the left, there was this break in the fence. And there was this dark trail that was going off through the woods. And it wasn't even hardly a trail. It was just like a, a track that had been overgrown and overgrown. But somehow I knew back there was where life was. And 
I mean, I'm just kind of speaking symbolically, but what it was, was I needed to find something that challenged me spiritually, mentally, and physically, and go climb that mountain. And not because of the peak, but because of the journey. And it's, it was a very Jungian kind of archetypal, um, the, the, the hero's quest, the hero's journey that Joseph Campbell talks about all the time that we all, especially as men, um, have to go on, which Star Wars was a perfect rendition of, you know, Luke Skywalker meeting the Oracle, um, you know, uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi and leaving his hometown and going on this quest and, uh, you yeah. know, and then finally returning home, a more complete version of, uh, of the human that you left as. And so that's really what it was. And I didn't know what it was I wanted to do. But something was calling me out of just regular life. And so I started thinking, what am I going to do? Am I climb Mount Everest? Am I going to go, you know, do a, be an extreme sports guy or go to India and sit in the ashram for 10 years? You know, all these things crossed my mind. I didn't know what, what would fulfill that itch. And then I thought back to when I was about 10 years old and my dad, one of his friends came over for dinner and this dude was a Navy guy. And he had gone through some bizarre, we went, we had dinner. And then afterwards, um, my dad and this guy were sitting in uh, the living room having coffee. And I was just kind of sitting there being seen and not heard. And uh, this guy started telling my dad about this weird Navy program. He was in the Navy whales or something like that. And he, he was talking about how his hands were tied <laughs> up behind his back and his feet were tied together. And he was thrown in the deep end of the pool to survive. And he swallowed water and he drowned and they pulled him out and revived him and asked him if he wanted to go back in again. He said, no, fuck that. I'm done. And I thought, me, I was, I was a swimmer growing up. I was on the swim team. I was always in the pool. I was the kid. They're blowing a whistle out at the end to get them out of the pool at the end of the, the, the session. And every time, dude, every time I got in the pool after that story, I thought, what would it be like to be tied up in the pool, having to survive? And of course, now I know that was the SEAL program it was BUDS and that was drown proofing, which isn't that crazily difficult of an evolution in BUDS comparatively speaking, but to a 10 year old kid, you know, thinking about being tied up and thrown in the pool. That's some crazy shit, man. Crazy yeah, shit. Yeah, yeah. And so I thought, what's the one thing that still scares me? That scares me. I'm still scared of that. And what's the one thing that I'm not sure I can do? I know if I put my mind to it, I could climb Mount Everest and I could, you know, go be an extreme, you know, hang glider or whatever. But could I make it through SEAL training? I'm not sure. So what do yeah. I have to do? That. That is what I have to do. I cannot not do that. I cannot go through life knowing that this is a thing that scared me the most and I turned away from it. And so I, uh, I went down to the recruiter, talked to him, bought all the books I could. And there weren't that many at the time, you know, a bunch of Vietnam books and stuff about uh, SEAL teams. So I read all the Vietnam books I could and uh, started training, <laughs> bought myself an old pair of surplus uh, flat foot paratrooper boots and started running my ass off <laughs> and swimming every day. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. And it sounds a lot like kind of, I think we all did that because it was kind of got the old school. We got the last of the old school world, you know, it was, uh, before there were Bates lights, you know, you remember <laughs> Bates lights that came, oh, is, they issued. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, what buds class were you in? I was two twenty until hell week. And then I was double rolled and I graduated in two twenty two. Okay. And, uh, did, were you injuries I'm guessing. Oh yeah. Um, we were summer hell week. And so, um, my boat crew was one of the top two or three boat crews. We put out like crazy. And so everyone, but one dude in our boat crew got stress fractures, um, in our legs. And so I had uh, bilateral stress fractures in both femurs. And so it was a double roll and uh, 
you know, and jump back in. It was, it was crushing at the time that happened, but, um, you know, it all worked out. Yeah. That's that resiliency that, uh, a lot of guys just have to have, you know? Yeah. Um, That's what it is. Yeah. Get up and keep moving. Even when you get, uh, even when you get hurt, you know, it just sucks, but you time will go by and eventually you're back in the saddle. Exactly. And I mean, it's hard and it's hard marking that time, but the alternative is to quit and it's to end and to have that hanging around your neck for the rest of your life. Yeah. I mean, uh, the triple two doesn't sound, that's not a bad class number two, 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 right? Yeah. That's triple deuce. <laughs> yeah. I think we sang, we sung that when we, when we ran onto the grinder one time, we got the shit beat out of us for not saying two, two, two and saying, uh, the, calling ourselves a triple deuce. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's not a bad number. Um, well, so, okay. So you did, you did your time. Uh, yeah. you, you, you got to go to Kosovo. Uh, where where else did you get to play around in? Kosovo and Afghanistan are the only places that we did anything real. I mean, we got to do some great J sets before um, 9-11. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We're still a thing. I don't know if they're still even doing those now, but we, we had some great ones, a lot of Eastern Europe, a lot of fun stuff. And then uh, we did our six weeks in Kosovo, which was really stoked on at the time because it's the only game in town. But then, um, of course, uh, I was deployed when 9-11 happened. And uh, um, right at the end of my deployment, of course, we didn't send guys in uh, immediately, at least guys from uh, the vanilla team. So I went home and when the next cycle, then we went to Afghanistan uh, with team four. And that was amazing. And then uh, I went to Buds. Yeah, nice. Uh, And then were you in first? So when you went to Buds, was it first phase, second phase? Second phase. I was going to college. So I went to second phase, which was awesome. Um, the guys in second phase were great and it was awesome working with the students who had already been through hell week. So you kind of weeded out most of the absolute jokers that didn't yeah. need to be there. And so you had students that you could work with that you could take a little more seriously. I actually really enjoyed my time as a buzz instructor. It felt like it was really full circle. Some guys didn't, some guys just wanted to get out of there and get back into the team. And I thought it was actually a really a beneficial and something where you could really, I mean, I remember a whole bunch of my buds instructors. I'm sure you do too. You mm-hmm. have the chance to, to give these guys something to show them, to instill in them some sort of understanding of the frog family and what you're supposed to do and how you're supposed to be and what brings value to the community and not just, you know, you know, doing all the things you're supposed to and getting your collateral duties done and stuff like that. But, you know, what do you do when you're with, one of your brothers and he's being a total asshole. He's about to start a fight in a bar. You know, I mean, there are just ways that things you need to know to fit in this group of knuckle dragging. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's group of men that we are, you know? Yeah. It's the first place where you get that cultural awareness. Right. I mean, I remember showing up to the buds quarter deck to check in and at that at that moment in time, there stands uh, Danny Chalker, right? He's the command master chief of Buds. He's in his uh, working whites, service whites. He uh-huh. looks, you, you look up at him and you're like, holy shit, that's the guy that, it's Snake Eyes that, you know, Dick Marchinko refers to in Rogue Warrior. <laughs> and, you know, he's standing in front of me right now. The mustache. Yeah. yeah. And he is the iconic frogman. Yes. I mean, exactly what you think of when you think of like the real old school frogman. Yeah. Right. And uh, there stands this badass who's a plank owner of Damn Neck and has this history. And I'd read him out about him in a book. And I was just like, holy shit. Now he's standing in front of me. And that, I mean, 
right then you're like, okay, this is like, this is real. And then you get into first phase and my first phase instructors are pretty much all the guys that were in the movie, the rock with Sean Connery (laughs) and Nicholas cage. Right. So it was Joe Hawes, right? Uh Joe Hawes was this, uh, you know, machine. And, uh, he was, uh, he had tried out as like a, a running back for the the Raiders when they were in Los Angeles back then. Um, but just a great guy, but all those guys personalities is what, how you learned the yeah. culture was through how they talked, how they act, how they, even how they yelled at you, you felt, Oh, okay, this is how I'm supposed to be. Yeah. So that you would hopefully show up to a seal team later and actually, you know, continue to carry the torch of that old school frogman mentality. But unfortunately it sounds like it's changed in a big way. And, uh, all these younger team guys don't get to experience that, that piece, which is unfortunate. It is unfortunate because that's, I think one of the greatest things about the seal teams. I mean, just that, not the camaraderie per se, but the, uh, just that respect and that understanding and that, that man tribe. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's important, you know, and I think that's why, you know, guys, you, uh, you and me and heck a bunch of other dudes that kind of got a taste of the old school, uh, end up finding our way back to each other. If it's through the Frogman MC or, you know, whatever other platforms there are, it's pretty interesting to see how the like-minded guys all find their way back to each other in some form or fashion, which is really cool. Absolutely. Uh, Cause yeah. it becomes something so valuable to to me and it's it's not it becomes uh even like the loyalty and the ties aren't necessarily to the person that you're giving that loyalty to it because it's it's your is that's what has been put into you and what you hold in such a high esteem from the experiences that we have had it creates in you it's not because I necessarily, like we were talking earlier before we started airing, it's not necessarily because I like you so much or because you're my mm-hmm. best friend in the teams, but it's because of the shared bond that we have. I'm still going to hook you up. I'm still going to take care of you because it's yeah. about me, not about you. Right. Yeah, totally. And uh, that's why, I mean, my personal passion, and if you watch my my any of my social feeds, is usually I'm promoting others. And I, I'd rather promote others and promote myself, you know, so any guy that I can push out there, I will. And, um, and it doesn't matter if, if they like me or not, you know, like I said, at the beginning, it's all good. (laughs) I love that, man. I love that level of support and taking care of and and being, I'm so always thrilled when I see another team guy doing really well for himself. Yeah, me too, man. For the guys that we talk about that have, you know, maybe sold our sold our community out a little bit, but aside from that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Every yeah. time the team guy doing well for himself, I'm ecstatic. I yeah. want to do Right. I'm with you. If team guys are crushing it, then it, it serves everyone yes. well in the end and it, and it keeps the community's reputation alive. Yes. Um, but yeah, I'm with you like the sellout part. I always tell people like, well, you know, I'm not the first, I'm not the last. And if I don't do it, somebody else will. So, you know, and that, that pretty much relates to anything, you yes. know, in life. Right. So yeah, why not? If you have those chances and not to mention, I don't have the leash of uncle Sam anymore. So I really don't give a fuck. <laughs> <laughs> don't run away. Okay. 
We got more to follow with Joel Lambert after the break. All right, so let's talk about, um, heck, one of the most popular things or maybe the most popular thing you've done since you uh, got out was Manhunt on Discovery yeah. Channel, right? I Man, mean, that thing. How many? So tell me about like, first, let's talk about what was Manhunt and then dive into like the most extreme experience you had doing it. Oh, dude, I got so many stories for that. But the way, so Manhunt, I was, um, I had just gotten out and I had moved up to Los Angeles because I was doing a lot of film and TV stuff. Um, I had a background in acting. I had some training. I had all that. And I started getting all these opportunities up in LA in front of the camera and behind. And I thought, you know, this isn't where I expected I would be. You know, I thought I was going to be in the teams forever, but I'm smashed up now and I'm getting out and, you know, these opportunities are presenting themselves. I have the training. I've, I've got a background. It would be stupid to, not take advantage of them. And so I moved yeah. up to LA, you know, just a couple hours from San Diego and um, with a, uh, another team guy. And I just started auditioning and, and doing some uh, film and TV work. I was doing some little guest stars and co-stars on scripted television and little bit parts and movies and stuff. And then a friend of a friend um, calls me up and he says, Hey, I've got this friend who is putting together a television show and he's looking for former special operations guys with a strong background in escape and evasion and in tracking. And well, I, I had those skill sets and those proclivities. And so I sent my resume and stuff to my friend who sent it to his friend. The guy called me up immediately and was like, oh, my God, this is great. You know, can we do some interviews? And so we did some interviews and talked on the phone a few times. And um, just to give you a little context to this, everybody in L.A. has a script has a TV show they're developing, has a movie that they've written, has something right. development. It's just, you know, you don't take it that seriously um, unless it's Rob Reiner, you know, unless somebody yeah. has a, a background in this. So I did a couple um, on camera, like Skype interviews with this guy. We talked quite a bit. He had this show. It was basically an E&E &E, um, channel that he was trying to set up a, an escape and evasion channel. And they'd do a documentary or a, um, a reality type show where they'd follow you know, somebody in a uh, escape and evasion scenario. I'm like, yeah, that's cool. Um, you know, I know all the tracking and I've, I've have a bunch of escape and evasion. Um, kind of that's, that's kind of where my proclivities and stuff had fallen, you know, when I was in the mm -hmm. team and afterwards. And, and so all the survival, all the um, uh, tracking, all that kind of stuff, booby traps and primitive skills. And so um, we were talking back and forth and the guy goes, okay, Hey, we're going to go out to um, Palm desert this weekend. And I want to shoot some stuff on you. Can you come out and let me shoot some stuff for, for my little sizzle reel. And I'm like thinking, okay, I've already spent a whole lot of time with this dude, helping him develop his thing. And now he wants me to go out to Palm desert and run around and help him make his sizzle reel. So he can go off and try and pitch this show wherever he's going to pitch it. I'm like, you know, dude, I'm sorry. I, I, I just don't really have the time to spend on it anymore. He goes, well, I'll pay you. I'm like, okay, the guy's going to pay me 300 bucks to me in a hotel room to go out to Palm Desert. I'll run around for three or four hours and let him shoot his little bullshit. And then I'll go off to J Tree for climbing or something. You know, I'll have a nice weekend outside of LA. So that's, yeah, yeah. that's what I do. So I go out, I'm driving out to, um, to Palm Springs and I'm pulling up at the address that he gave me for the hotel. And I'm pulling down this long driveway and these palm trees are, you know, passing my car. And I pull up this huge turnaround drive where there's like, this beautiful resort. There's like Bentleys and Ferraris parked in front of this resort. I'm like, wow, this dude's really shelling out to, you know, to put us in a nice place. And so I go check in, I go to my room and the phone rings and I pick it up. I'm like, hello. 
And uh, this woman says, uh, hi, Mr. Lambert. I know you're not scheduled to work till tomorrow. I'm so-and-so. I'm the production coordinator. But I'm wondering, uh, Sarah Davies, the vice president of Discovery International, just flew in from London, and she's wondering if you'll have dinner with her tonight. And at that point, the light bulb goes off uh, above my head. And I'm thinking, well, maybe this is actually something real. It <laughs> 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 has some wheels, has some legs underneath it. Yeah, yeah. So I go out to dinner uh, with Sarah and the two guys who created this sh- uh, the um the show and we have dinner and we end up drinking too much bourbon and end up telling her a story of some raunchy stories that I probably shouldn't have told, you know, team guy type stories. <laughs> yeah. I got more bourbon in me and, you know, started flowing. Well, she loved it. She's this big British woman, just all brassy and, and all kinds of foul mouthed. And so we, we got along fantastically. The next day we go out and shoot this stuff. And it turns out that they, they've got me, they've got a, a SAS guy. They flew in from Hereford. They're looking at, and they had a Marine as well, that they were looking at all three of us for this show. And uh, so we just ran around in the desert and talked about tactics. And I built a booby trap and they wanted me to, to bring some stuff to build a booby trap. And I brought a few things. Um, I didn't bring, I didn't put any thought into it. And so I get out there, I'm like thinking, oh, this is real. And so I build a deadfall booby trap tripwire with just some telephone cord and stuff I found out there in the, the, um, the desert. And it was awesome. And they loved it. And so then um, it was just one of those things in life where sometimes you just know, you just know in your knower that that something is it's almost prescience. You know, you know what's going to happen and you know it's perfectly right and you know it's for you. And that's what I knew when this went on. And so they called me like a week later and said, you're the one who got it. We, we're going to do do it with you. We're going to present it Discovery Channel with you. We're going to shoot a, a pilot. I'm like, awesome. I, I wasn't surprised. I knew. And so we went out and we shot a pilot episode and then it got picked up for series. And we did uh, two seasons internationally it aired in um 240 different countries and territories globally. Um, the only country it did not air in that I'm aware of is, is uh, Canada, which is very strange, um, but it aired every place else. And uh, it was awesome. And I would insert in foreign countries. I would skydive in places I wasn't supposed to be. I'd, you know, cross borders under trucks. I'd, you know, I'd swim up from the ocean and somehow I'd ping that country. They'd be, they'd be expecting me like Joel's going to show up this week between Monday and Friday, sometime between 6 a.m. and 9.45 a.m. And that's all you know. And so they'd be standing by and then I would do a pre, uh, pre-planned ping. I'd send up a flare or a smoke or I'd cut an electrified fence or something to let them know where I was at. And then they would respond and the hunt was on. And for two to four days, I would be um, doing escape and evasion. I'd be doing uh, anti-tracking, counter-tracking. I'd be setting booby traps. I'd be uh, laying deception trails. And they would take all of their special operations force, their fugitive recovery team, or their specialty tracking unit would use their dogs, their drones, their their FLIR, whatever they had, they would would come after me with and try to track me down and take me down before I made my extract point. And it was awesome and brutal. Yeah, dude, that sounds like so much fun. But let me, so let's just clarify the series, or should I say the network pretty much gave host countries very little information, but had to get their approval, right? You weren't just rolling in there. I mean, there was a little bit of that setup, right? It was laid out like you were doing a, 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 um, FTX or a full mission profile kind oh, okay. of thing. So what was really awesome about it, because we've done things like this before, but we never had all the assets assigned to it. So what we'd do is when we were developing the, the season, we would come up with a list of like 10 or 12 different possibles. 
Mm-hmm. We would reach out to those different countries and those different units and see if they're interested. And from there, we'd maybe have six or seven that were interested. And then we'd start negotiating with them and, and, and seeing if it would work out because these were all active units. And so they had deployment schedules, they had work schedules. And so we'd have to figure out how we could film all the episodes in sequential order um, and fit in with these countries' schedules and availabilities. And so, yeah, gotcha. Whole development. And then there would be a back and forth of, you know, where it's going to be. And they would negotiate on what, um, what part of the country it would be and uh, what assets they would use, what assets they wouldn't use. They really could use any assets they wanted. They just had to disclose so we could put cameras um, in those um, assets. Although, of course, you know how it goes. Everyone cheated. So there were a lot of assets that uh, got used. <laughs> yeah. Um, a lot of stuff ended up that happened that didn't end up on the show. <laughs> yeah, I bet. It was awesome. And so we would uh, plan this out. And so then the country would know, you know, I'd come in and we'd, we'd sit down and we'd all sign contracts and we'd all shake hands. We'd all meet each other. And then they would know that, you know, there would be like a three day window or a four day window. And we give them a time window within those three or four days, you know, from 11 PM to 1 AM on either Monday, Tuesday, or Wednesday, it's going to happen. And so just be watching your normal things. And then we would come up with a way for me to let them know um, based on what they actually did. So we would kind of, I would kind of mold my E&E plan and the tools I would use and the booby traps I would use and all of that around kind of what they actually are used to dealing with um, on a regular basis. So I did one in South Africa um, in a Kruger National Park. And so I kind of acted like and conducted myself like a poacher would. Um, and then in Poland, they had a lot of uh, Eastern European people um, smuggling and crossing through their uh, their woods um, into Western Europe. And so I kind of conducted myself in that manner, you know, using the tools and uh, kind of moving in that same way. Of course, I'm using all the stuff I have at my disposal, but we kind of wanted to gear it in the, the method that they're used to uh, working. Yeah. And then they get some training out of it as well by having to find, try and, yeah, yeah. I mean, they got to track and try to take down someone who has a skill sets and motivation much higher than their general, you know, a person. And I get to do an escape and evasion exercise against a country using all of their assets. Yeah. You know, they're, they're using uh, global hawks or they're using, um, you know, uh, hardcore uh, FLIR um, uh, uh, units or they're using, in fact, uh, some sometimes when they use things they're not supposed to, they're using a mobile phone triangulation um, uh, yeah. vehicles to try to triangulate the producer's cell phone. Um, <laughs> that happened in South Korea. They don't know that I know, but I know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I gotcha. Wow, that's, that is so cool. And now for each of those countries, uh, what were your you know takeaways for the listener? You cross, you get in, you know, which I would say, you know, black, right? You have white, gray, and black is the color codes for how you get into countries. And so you were going in pretty much black. Um, And then what were your priorities as far as like when it came to water and food and all that? How did you kind of? That's a good question. So um, I would have to, when I would plan this out, I would usually have a week to two weeks to plan um, my evasion out. And so I'd have a map and I would know my extract point. They wouldn't know my extract point. So I would know my insert, my extract point. And so I would, you know, I would map different possible routes. Um, so I would have four or five different routes 
that were possibilities, depending on what they do, you know, what they do is going to drive me in different directions. And so mm-hmm. uh, along those routes, depending on the, the environment I'm in, of course, there's water f- considerations, there's food considerations, there's uh, temperature considerations, there's temperature differential night and day, you know, when you're in the desert. Um, there were a lot of different things I'd have to take into um, consideration. Um, water was probably the biggest one. Um, most cases. So, you know, you have your rule of threes, three days without water, three weeks without food, or uh, three three hours without shelter, three uh, days without water, three weeks without food. So mm-hmm. you have to prioritize your um, what you need to do, your shelter, your water, your food, according to the environment and the time constraints and, and the weather and where you're at. So I would plan everything out and I would be like, oh, there's just a really cool pond on the map. If that's actually there, I could do a really cool deception around there. And it looks like there's some sparse trees here. So I could set some booby traps and then I could diddy out off here at like about, um, you know, about 270. And I could probably leave them confused there for a couple hours. And so I would prepare um, just rough, rough ideas of deceptions and booby traps. And I would then prepare, you know, what I would need for those in my little e e kit. And so then if I happen to find myself in that area, if based on what they did in tracking and chasing me, drove me to that area, I would have something kind of halfway thought out already planned that I could pull out of my ass and, and, uh, and set up there. So I gotcha. had a chance to, I would do a lot of homework on a lot of map study, um, a lot of homework because, you know, I couldn't drive the, uh, they were driving where I was going really. Um, I just yeah. had flexible and have enough contingencies planned out that no matter where they drove me, I would have a plan and I wouldn't just be running. Don't think about switching to some other podcast. We will come out of your phone or whatever device you're listening to and hit you across the face. More with Joel Lambert after the break. Right, right. Yeah, I like it. Um, now, did you carry a water filter? Yeah. Just to, to simplify. So what was your favorite water filter you used? Well, um, I would carry a couple different ones. I generally wouldn't carry a filter. A lot of times I just carry iodine tablets. Um, oh, okay. It, it would depend. You know, I mean, if I'm some, in some place with uh, like swampy, and a lot of murky water, then I would carry a filter because, you know, you got to filter the sediment out. But honestly, for this kind of stuff, for any corridors and for running, um, a sandy straw, I thought was the best uh, portable oh, water. yeah. So you can just wear it around your neck, you know, it lasts forever. And I can suck out of a, a, a mud puddle. I can suck out of a, you know, a, a nicely running stream, but I would always have iodine tablets. That was kind of my go-to. Yeah. The Puri tabs and stuff. Yeah. They got so many different variations these days that you can uh, just throw two tabs in and boom, you got good water without it. it's virus and bacterial, you know, free. Exactly. Yeah. Which is huge in order to keep going. Um, yeah. And then I'm guessing sometimes you just said, fuck it, and probably just starved, right? Because you knew you were only going two to four days. If I had the chance, I mean, I would I would do, I would always familiarize myself with the medicinals and the edibles in the area, and then also venomous snakes and all the other stuff. So I would know, I don't have all that in my mind bank. I would, you know, research each place I'm going in. So I know. Yeah. Um, and so a lot of times, like when I was in Africa, um, you know, you'd find, I walked through some fields of termites and you know, I just grabbed termites and eat those. So you have something that you're eating. It's not going to give you a lot of sustenance, but if you can just grab a couple of grasshoppers or locusts, you know, there's something in your stomach, there's something there to keep it from growling. Um, or you can get a snake. That's great. Or, you know, some edible leaves, um, or, or flowers. That's great. But most of the time it was just exactly what you said, fuck it and starve. And then there were a couple of <laughs> yeah. times too, that 
um, on the water situation. Now, you know, I'm, to everybody out there listening, never drink untreated water when you're out. Just even if it's a pure mountain stream, something might, might be dead up ahead, um, yeah. upstream, and, and you just don't know it. It always pays to filter your water. But there were a few times when I'm like, there's like four hours left or two hours left, or I'm only 400 meters through the jungle till my extract point. And I'm like, I need something to drink. I'm not going to wait 45 minutes for my, my tabs to work. I'm just going to drink that water because if it puts me, if I get dysentery, I'm going to be back at the hotel and I won. So <laughs> yeah. the wind is, is smaller than the window for the, um, the bacteria. Right infection to hit me so i just say fuck it <laughs> just do some quick math and be like okay gulp 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 <laughs> like i hope i hope this doesn't you know ruin my weekend once i'm back in the hotel <laughs> that's awesome um yeah man what a great experience now that so once you did two seasons of that then then what kind of came after that well uh, after the first season a manhunt was really popular we did a bunch of press it was fantastic. I was having a great time. And uh, so I, they then gave me a second show called uh, Predators Up Close. And that aired on Animal Planet mostly and on Discovery in some countries where we would go um, interact with some of the world's biggest predators, great whites, uh, polar bears, uh, lions and hyenas. And they built this special dome, this little geodesic dome out of um, you know, aluminum and plastic. And we would build this dome and kind of encourage these animals to come up and attack the dome. And we'd have bite strength meters and things like that. And I would be in the dome filming them and, you know, getting attacked by these giant animals. And that was awesome. Uh, and I wanted to, I picked that one because I, I just thought, how cool would it be to be in a little um, aluminum and uh, plexiglass tent while a polar bear climbs on top and tries to, you know, break in I'm like that's, badass stuff and so yeah. I, I did that and i remember we were doing it with great white so this this actual pod that we made it was amphibious so it dropped into the water off of the shark ship and the pod had these big holes in it so the sharks couldn't get all the way in but i could reach out and so these great white sharks would come attack this pod and we're filming it and it's just badass but what was really cool is the shark would come swimming up and, and on this pod and then would kind of back off and turn sideways and swim off and this these you know, 15 foot great whites are right there. And I'm reaching out, grabbing their gills, grabbing their pectoral fins, you know, petting these great white sharks. And I remember you know, I comms, you know, full face mask and I comms to the top and the director who's British, he's like, uh, Joel, are you uh, reaching out and grabbing the sharks? And I'm like, fuck yeah, yeah, these are great white sharks. And who, when, when am I going to get a chance to grab a great white shark again? And he's like, please, insurance would like you to keep your hands and feet inside the pod. And I'm like, no fucking way, dude. So I'm grabbing every shark I can. I'm like, come on, dude. Would you just grab a great white shark? You take yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, you you definitely checked a bunch of uh, bucket lists that uh, no one else would ever write down as a bucket list <laughs> item. Guys like us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's only it's usually only team guys that have these yeah. uh, very distorted versions of what's cool. <laughs> yeah, the thing that was cool that a lot of people didn't think was cool is uh, that we did a two part special on uh, Fukushima. So we actually got to go to Fukushima after the meltdown. I got to go in the actual destroyed reactors. And uh, oh, wow. yeah, I was wearing a, a radiation, I can't remember what you call it, radiation meter. Um, Geiga meter or whatever. Eh, something like that. Yeah. Um, that was uh, measuring my, my, how much radiation I took over the course of the filming. And once it hit the total, I was, you know, I couldn't Done. get back on the, um, the place, but that was a fascinating thing to go there and hear the whole stories and watch everything and see what 
um, you know, that actually happened and see the melted down reactors. And it was pretty crazy stuff, man. Damn, man. Yeah. That's a lot of cool stuff. It's cool. Uh, yeah. You've already, you've lived, uh, you've gotten to experience several, uh, obviously, uh, life's worth of just cool shit, I would say. Um, you know, I think that's pretty common for team guys and guys like us. I mean, we, 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 we go in the teams and that's of course is a, is a lifetime in and of itself, but yeah. then skill sets, just like what you're doing, the skill sets you brought out, there are so many ways to leverage and, and, um, and share those in authentic and beneficial ways, um, that we get to keep doing this. Yeah, no doubt. It's a whole lot of fun. And, uh, you know, uh, I think the key is just how do you just try not to be bored, you know, and <laughs> it's like the other piece of the equation I tell people all the time is when you when you professionally uh, take risks, then um, you personally start to become a risk taker as well. I mean, it's it's not a surprise that if you're getting paid to take risk, yes. then it's going to bleed into your per, your personal life. And then before you know it, you're just always doing risky stuff. Yeah. Um, and sometimes guys don't know how to handle that and they do bad risky things. Um, and then, or there's good risky things, uh, like, you know, diving with sharks and polar and hanging out with polar bears. <laughs> That's good risky things besides, yeah, I think you know, us, guys like us when doing, getting the risky things, you know, that we did in our training and in um, you know, our careers we see the benefit of that. Like it's an enlightenment experience almost. I mean, these kinds of near death or just saying, fuck it, I'll die. I'm going to get this done. Those yeah. kind of moments create revelation and like little glimpses into enlightenment and it elevates us. And so I, it's like, it's not, it's not an adrenaline rush. It's not an adrenaline addiction to why I still take risks and why I do these things. It's because in those moments of choosing death, that's where life really is. Yeah, I I, I, I kind of see where you're going with that. And for me, it was uh, a deeper appreciation, right? You do something that's kind of like, what the fuck? And then afterwards, you're like, you know what? I really, uh, you really do enjoy uh, the smaller things a whole lot more than yeah. if you'd never experience that kind of stuff or you know, have any kind of risk in your life. But I also also equate it to just testing your will, right? Yeah. You got to test your will at least once a year. Um, and it serves as a reset. Like you can just, it allows you to keep moving forward um, in a progressive way rather than just sitting stagnant, you know, doing what you're doing all the time. 1000%. And there's a Zen saying, I'm going to completely mangle and put in my own words. <laughs> Basically, it's, it's um, you have to die before you die to really live. Yeah, there you go. I like that. Sounds like a good tattoo. Um, <laughs> all right. So now this whole enlightenment, that as soon as you said enlightenment, that kind of draws me into the next uh, topic for you, and that's the psychedelics. Are yeah. you? Uh, yeah, so are you sold on psychedelics, and is this a regular thing, or did you just kind of experience it and like, all right, that was cool? No, it was. I am 100% sold on it. I, uh, I got plugged into the psychedelic program um, in Mexico that a lot of the guys are going down to, and I'd heard about yeah. it quite a bit. Nobody was really talking about it much at that point in time, but you know, I found my way to it and I went down and we had the Ibogaine and the five MEO experience changed my entire life, changed my entire outlook on everything. And, uh, I will never be the same psychedelics, man. That is, I think that psychedelics and plant medicines in general from cannabis up to, you know, Ibogaine and the ayahuasca, the reason 
we're not, the reason those are controlled is because that creates powerful humans that don't need the system. And I think the system is very invested in keeping us locked down, broken debt slaves um, on the, uh, this uh, broken monetary system and this uh, uh, career, um, get your gold watch and then travel in your RV for 10 years before you die program that benefits the cabal. You know, the, it, it, it's not what we are supposed to be as humans. It's not how we live. And psychedelics, I think, can open up your understanding to source and to what we really are and the potential in humanity and the things that will bring us to our next stage in in enlightenment. So I am, I did it once it changed everything about everything. And since then um, my girl and I, we went down to uh, uh, Costa Rica last new year's Eve. And we did a, 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 ayahuasca retreat, uh, several ceremonies together. And I still um, touch into the psychedelic world on a fairly regular basis. And it's, I mean, every tradition you look back on, every religious tradition, every um, spiritual tradition, if you go back far enough, you'll find some place where I think that psychedelics or entheogenic substances played a part in somebody's revelation and in some sort of the, um, you know, as people go through spiritual uh, pathways, you know, it's a progressive kind of thing. And I think uh, psychedelics and uh, plant medicines play a part in almost all traditions. Yeah. Uh, I'm having, I've heard a lot about it. I heard that it, it literally like uh, reprograms neuro pathways so that you can just be free again because of life experience or even, or just traumatic experiences can kind of get, uh, uh, they're still there, but they're just rewired, not affecting you as much as they did. And that's why the whole PTSD TBI world is kind of going down this path. Is that correct? Yes. I think that's, um, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, when I had the Ibogaine experience, it was, and this is not my analogy. Somebody said this, it's like, your life, you have all these, it's like a, if you lived in a little cabin on a snowy hill and over the course of time, the path you walk to the outhouse and to the stream and the creek and down to the driveway gets imprinted in the snow and gets worn into the snow. And, and the way you sled, you know, after you sled for a while on a hill, you develop a track and it's very hard to get out of that track and the track kind of directs how you go. And having a psychedelic experience like Ibogaine, which is a addiction interrupter, uh, they use it for people that are uh, hardcore heroin addicts and opioid addicts. And within the first five minutes of the experience, you are uh, physically and mentally free of addiction. Um, and so mm-hmm. like a fresh snowfall over all the old stuff and the pathways are still there, but now you're able to choose. Do I want to take this path or do I want to write a new one? It gives you an opportunity to rewrite, write. Um, the addictions aren't just the physical addictions or the the drug addictions, the addictions that breaks are patterns of thinking, you know, and patterns of feeling and the way that our brains are wired with these default neural pathways, which kind of create our personality where, you know, your brain just kind of tends to take these same pathways over and over. And that's the way we think. And then it, if there's a picture in a book that I read on a, a brain on psilocybin and a brain normally, and the brain normally, you know, it showed all these pathways and it was very complex, but you can see the pathways were all pretty, um, well-worn, you know, there are, there are only a few 
parts of the brain that were connected to a few other parts. And there were big lines drawing those. And the other connections were all very small if they were even there. And then on psilocybin, magic mushrooms, all these pathways just exploded and different parts of your brain can communicate with other parts that maybe had never communicated before. And so hmm. it creates possibility, it just creates possibility. Wow. Yeah. It's fascinating. And I've heard a lot of positive stuff from all the guys. Yeah. I mean, I always compare it to like when you said the creative side, right? Most creative or innovative things that have come out are usually, I mean, you know, psychedelics or something was probably involved in history, you know, and yes. you've got everybody from Joe Rogan to, uh, you know, Elon Musk, who definitely believe in it. And, uh, and, and I think have claimed it out loud that, yeah, you know, if I'm most of the Elon's greatest thoughts have been uh, probably while he is high <laughs> or the, what we would say is high. Or if you look at like Stephen King, I mean, he admittedly says he, you know, he snorted a couple lines of Coke and wrote Cujo in three days and never slept, you know? <laughs> so <laughs> great book. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, I think there's like a dozen books he admits that he wrote like in this, I mean, literally in 72 hours high as a kite <laughs> that yeah. are now, you know, bestsellers and big okay. movies. <laughs> Cocaine, I think is a, a pretty bad deal, but <laughs> yeah. medicines and stuff, what they can do for people. I, I highly encourage, you know, people to explore those pathways because um, it will open up to you uh, possibilities that you never could have even conceptualized. Wow. Yeah. Well, I might have to check it out someday. Absolutely. So, a chance to go down to the Mexico, the, jump in on that. That's a, um, a really well done experience. All right. I'll have to hit you up about that. Yeah. Um, man, we could go on for, for, for on and on, I'm sure with some of your experiences, but, uh, for the sake of time, we got to roll into your hypothetical survival scenario, which I know you're going to crush, but, uh, I mean, this really is what determines whether or not you survive this podcast. So are you, uh, are you ready, Joel? All right. I guess All right. I am. Right. <laughs> okay. Get your, get your ball gag ready. Here we go. If you're on an acid trip, well, then Joel loves you. More with Joel after the break. For this scenario, you've taken a trip to a cabin in the woods for some meditation and self-reflection. While at the cabin, you decide to walk into the woods and meditate for a while in nature. You know, just take it all in. Sure. Uh, you bring a map of the woods with you. You start to walk towards the entrance of the woods, and you realize you left your cell phone behind. Okay, one so, question first. Yeah. Am I naked and am I high? <laughs> yes. Nope. <laughs> yes. Right. Yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll go ahead and say, yes, you are naked and you are high as a kite. So here we go. Uh, first question. Uh, do you, A, continue on in the woods and meditate with no devices, or B, go back to the cabin and grab the phone just in case? I go back and grab the phone for a couple reasons. My meditation timer is on my phone and I use it <laughs> that connects to app that I usually uh, measure on my heartbeat and respiration and stuff while I meditate. There, there so, we go. Yes. And plus okay. emergency use <laughs> type. There stuff. we go. Yep. So even though you're taking that time in the woods to quote unquote unplug, yes, we recommend that all guests and listeners, you bring your device just in case you need to dial 911 or whatever. Um, you find a spot far out in the woods to meditate for a solid hour. You decide it's time to head back. You start to walk back in the direction in which you came when out of nowhere, a wild boar, a boar charges you down, right? So do you A, 
kick the boar in the face or B, quickly climb a tree? Oh, B, quickly climb a tree if that's an option. Good choice, yeah. The head and the cape of a wild boar is like armor. It's like body armor. So kicking it's not going to do anything. Hell, you could shoot that armor and it's probably not going to do much to it. Yeah. Uh, So, yeah. They're they're tusks and rip your femoral out before you even... That's right. Yeah. They can... They've got lethal tusks and their jaw is strong enough to just crush your bones, you know right in place so yeah they're they're dangerous little fuckers um so but if you climb a tree and you do it fast enough and you plan for the fact that there are some big boars uh boars will use their front you know hooves i guess they call them hooves on a boar uh to you know go up the tree and stand up on their hind legs so you got to make sure you at least get probably six feet or higher and you'll be all right you just got to wait for the boar to get bored uh and leave you alone um so you go up the tree, right. good choice, and uh, you know you as you're coming down a tree, you slip and tumble down a steep rocky decline, right? You tumble about thirty-five or forty feet and then splash into some river rapids. Okay, it's a bad day. All that meditations has gone out the window. Um, you end up on a shoal in the middle of the rapids. So, do you a dive into the water and swim for land? Or B, locate a long stick that's gotten stuck up against the shoal and use it to walk across the river. How do I? I mean, does a stick lay across the river? Is it falling down? Or <clears throat> like, as a walk? No, you use it. You can use it basically as a third leg. Oh, okay. Yeah. You know, so river crossing. Tactics. Yeah, I absolutely use that yeah. as, a, as a third leg. Because if I, um, you know, swimming, you got some potential issues there with a speed and then un- stuff that's under the water and if i slip and fall i'm going to be you know the, the stick can help me avoid all those rocks and stuff as well <clears throat> yeah there you go you never really want to dive into the water because if you can't see the bottom then you break your neck yep. um and you know the long stick like we mentioned serves as a third leg and you you know river crossings you know they're not a big deal if you just do it right and basically you face into the current and you kind of you sidestep across and you have that third leg out in front of you um and so a lot of people what they do is they just try to walk straight across and the current's coming to their left or to their right and it's very difficult to maintain good good footing that way so you sidestep with your facing into the current and the odds are you'll make it across just fine um so you make it to the river bank um, good job. All right. Uh, with all the adrenaline, you didn't feel any of the pain at the moment because you did fall. Right. Uh, but then you realize that you've uh, fractured your leg. What oh. the hell? So, <laughs> do you a do you a move quickly to find your way out of the woods and get help, or b just you got to start addressing the wound? I start addressing the wound. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. B. I mean, unless there's um, a situation where I got to get off the X, you got to deal with. Um, you got to deal another with another boar. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You got another boar. Um, no, not yet. Okay. So, <laughs> um, by moving quickly on the damaged leg, you could just make the injury worse. So it's better to stop and take a moment and do what you can to, uh, fix yourself. Uh, right. so you had some 550 cord with you and, uh, you go ahead and grab some sticks and you splint you know, your leg, and now you're a little more, a little more mobile. Right. Uh, you also take this time to consult your map and check out, okay, where have I ended up? And according to the map, um, you can make your way back uh, 
uh, up the incline uh, to find your way back, but it will uh, it it'll be about a quarter of a mile back to safety. Or you can take the long way and stay on flat ground, um, and it's about a half a mile to safety. So do you a go up the incline for the quarter mile, or do you go b you take the flat route that's a half mile? I would form a crutch out of whatever branch I could find. Uh, so I have uh, the stability on my broken leg and I would take the long way back. On that, that's, that's a good answer, B. Uh, you know, so this, this question really is all about energy conservation as well as avoiding the steep incline because it's the one thing that broke your leg. It doesn't really make sense to try and go back up it. Exactly, um, it's a broken leg. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, the flat route may be longer, but, you know, you're you're injured, and another quarter mile uh, is probably the better choice. Um, so as you proceed the flat route, you come across several dead human bodies. Oh, wow, okay. Okay, yeah. <laughs> so do you, A, investigate the bodies, checking for IDs and functioning cell phones and supplies, or B, just get the fuck out of there? Is it obvious what has caused their death? Uh, not yet. Okay. <laughs> you know, I think... The do you want to touch them is the question. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the situation is uh, um, dependent mostly on how much pain I'm feeling and how much energy I have. If, uh, if I have some, uh, if I feel really good, I would probably do a cursory checkout. You know, I wouldn't get too involved in it. I would mark the spot if my device is still working and I'll probably keep going. And then um, I wouldn't want to disturb the scene um, and I wouldn't want to uh, get too close to something that I don't know what the cause of death was. Yeah, you're correct. It's probably better to uh, just keep on moving. Right? Yeah. Um, and especially for this scenario. Okay. There's several reasons not to mess with uh, a bunch of dead bodies, you know, you find in the woods. Um, yeah. You, you know, looking for survival tools and this and that, uh, in, in the real world is probably a good idea, but this hypothetical world, it's <laughs> not a good idea. Um, cause whatever killed them may be nearby or coming back. That's huh. one consideration. Sure. So you don't want to hang out in the area for any extended period of time. Maybe you can take um, What's that? Be contagious. That's right. It could be contagious. So you pick up the pace and you keep on moving like, okay, I don't want to end up with these freaks. Um, you're now approaching the edge of the forest and your cabin is not that far away. You're out of the woods and, and approaching the cabin. You're about 30 feet from the cabin and you hear from behind you this groan. Okay. <laughs> and uh, you look back and those dead bodies are uh, reanimated and uh. appear to be headed towards you. And they might even have their hands out in front of them and, uh, you know, kind of coming towards you like a zombie. So uh. it is uh, getting in the Halloween spirit here. So do you, A, run towards the back of the cabin where your car is parked about 60 feet away, or B, just get inside because that's only about 30 feet? Oh, shit. I guess it would depend on how well I'm feeling because I think the better choice is to get in the car and get the fuck out of there. We've <laughs> yeah. all seen zombie movies in the cabin. We all know it doesn't really work out well for the people staying in the cabin. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Um, but the, the, I mean, it depends on what I think I can do. You know, yeah. if I 
making it to 60 feet. Well, zombies are slow, unless these are fast zombies. If they're the slow zombies, normal zombies, and I can outrun them, and I feel like I can, I'm going to get in my car and dd the fuck out of there. Well, but, there's thirty. There's thirty three kinds of zombies, and uh, these are the fast twitch. These are the ones that just fucking run. They run so freaking fast. You just, just no way you're gonna outrun. Yeah, then I think I'm gonna get in the cabin. <laughs> there you go. B. <laughs> you know what's funny? And uh, you know, uh, one of the listeners they made a comment on uh, on one of my posts, and they said. The answer is always B, Clint. The answer is always B. So uh, somebody has figured this thing out because I'm sitting here looking at this sheet going, you know what? They're right. Every single time it's B. (laughs) We might have to switch that up a little. Um, So the entrance of the cabin is much closer and your car keys are inside. Oh, okay. Yeah. So we got to uh, consider that part, right? So. That's right. The zombies, the zombies are coming your way and almost at the entrance of the cabin. Do you, A, search the house for weapons, or B, block the door first? Block the door, man. That's right. Block that damn door. Got to stop the advance. That's right. Um, you know, weapons are important. We all know it and we love them. But uh, you have to stop them from getting inside first. So, you know, this, this actual skill applies to, uh, you know, active shooter scenarios. When you have to barricade a door, you want to do it properly. And so it's creating a, a, a basically a chain of furniture from the door to the opposing wall, right? You just put anything you can stacked all together. So something against the door, something behind that, and something behind that, something behind that, all the way to the opposite wall. That wall then becomes your doorstop, and there's no way anybody's getting in that door. And that's the proper way to barricade a door. Most people think you just stack stuff up in front of it, and that does nothing but fall over. Yeah. All right. So next. Very little do you, uh, rubber doorstops, too. So if I have Hell, the- yeah. Yeah, the, I like those. You know, if you've got about six of those things and you put them two at the top, yeah. two, two on the locking side and two at the bottom, I yeah, mean, it makes... Yeah, that makes a door. That makes a door very difficult to uh, open. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, so, do you next a hide inside the house and hope the zombies don't get in, or b make a calculated escape, which you're a pro at, uh, out the back of the house and rush for your vehicle? I would somehow try to set up whatever distraction I could um, to draw their attention away, and I would see if I could get to the car because you know zombie cabins in the wood. It's just, it's That's not right. Gonna... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is a horror movie that uh, isn't going to end well. Um, so, yes, go to the car. Yes. Uh, before you get to the car, you encounter a couple of these zombies, and uh, which you, you bash in the skull and with the bat you grabbed, because uh, we all love bats. Uh-huh. And uh, now you've made it way into the vehicle. You start it up. You floor it. You mow down a couple of more zombies on your way out. A bunch Last of question. So do you, A, get on the highway and don't stop driving until you're as far out of town as possible, or B, go to a nearby military base that you notice and drive there instead? Mm. Uh, depending on the condition of the vehicle and the gas and all of that, I would go as far as possible because you don't know, the infection might have come from the military. They might be in on this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Distance on uh, <laughs> Last thing you want to do is face zombies with uh, M4s or any kind of <laughs> yeah, rifle. <exactly. laughs> fast twitch, fast twitch zombies with weapons. That's Arm, not yes, a good day. That's yeah. <laughs> bad. Awesome, man. Well, you, hey, you did. You you nailed it. You uh, you survived this podcast, and uh, 
A lot of a uh, lot of great information, man. You are a uh, you are several encyclopedias of experience and good info, and I appreciate your time on here. So, where can people find you? What do you have going on these days that you'd like to uh, let everybody know about? Oh uh, well, the thing I've, I'm most excited about is I've um, after manhunt and everything uh, died down. I had got a motorcycle accident and uh, wasn't able to continue doing that. Um, I. I had people ask me all the time, when are you going to, you know, take, do like a celebrity edition of Manhunt and take a celebrity with you on a hunt or, um, you know, take people out or teach them how to do these things. And I'm like, I'm thinking, man, I get compromised so much just because I have a cameraman with me. There's no way I'm going to take Kim Kardashian or anything out on a, <laughs> that would be interesting. But I was thinking of ways to, um, to have people participate and teach them some of the skills, the escape and evasion, the deception trails, the booby traps and stuff like that. And I came up with an idea um, for an augmented reality game. And for those that aren't familiar, um, virtual reality is, of course, when you're immersed in a completely different world with um, you know, sensory deprivation type equipment. Augmented reality are, is digital overlays over the real world. So advertising, information, um, guidance, translations, things like that. And augmented reality gaming is the next huge thing. All the big companies, Samsung, Google, Apple, are spending billions of dollars into their um, their hardware and their software for augmented reality. And so, uh, in fact, Pokemon Go is the top augmented reality game right now. Last year, it made $2 billion worldwide um, just on in-app purchases and stuff. It's insane. Damn. It's yeah. amazing. That's still going, still going, Pokemon. still going. It's, yeah. it's, it's going more than it was when people were hearing about it, but there are several other augmented reality games. They're not good games. They're, they're not very, very many good games out, but what they are is um, it, the, they make the low end ones make from 17 to $35 million a year on these, uh, these augmented reality games. So I created escape and evasion tracking booby traps and deception trails are perfect for augmented reality because you can overlay those onto any sidewalk, onto any street, onto any kind of experience. And so I created a game, a mobile augmented reality game um, based on escape and evasion, uh, based on the skill sets I used in Manhunt, um, where people would create their avatar, they would track people through their hometowns, through their neighborhoods, um, uh, solving and avoiding booby traps and solving deception trails and ultimately trying to take down their quarry before they make it to their extract point and get away. There's a whole storyline. There's a, it's a whole game that we created. I pitched it to a few people and they lost their minds. They were super excited. So we got a venture capital firm on board, got some lawyers, got some other partners and some augmented reality uh, studios and stuff on board. And so we're going ahead and we're building Escape and Evade Mobile. Uh, and so people can go to escape and evade mobile, escape, A N D evade mobile.com and sign up for updates and everything. And we'll keep you in the loop on everything that's happening. It's very exciting. It's a huge, um, emerging tech and a huge, the, the, the money that they've forecast, uh, for augmented reality in general and gaming specifically and the mobile uh, world is is mind boggling. And so we're creating something that, that is one of the, it's uniquely situated to show all the capabilities of augmented reality while people experience a really fun gameplay. Um, and so that's what I'm working on now. I'm not doing really any other on-camera stuff, a few things here and there, but the game is what we're doing. So escape and evade mobile.com. 
Wow. That sounds pretty cool. So let me get this right. You're going to be able to uh, use, are you using your phone or are you putting on goggles and walking down so the street? That's right now it's the phone, but without yeah. glass and all the other ones coming yeah. out, that is where it's all going to be. Cause then you're going to be like um, Ethan, what's his name? And, and um, those, uh, uh, oh, yeah. Ethan Hawk or the computer screens up there and you're swiping and you're touching. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah interacting yeah. like that so that's what's going to be happening with all this other hardware but right now even with just a mobile phone so you create you download the game it's free to play you create an account you create your avatar you've got different slots that you can fill up like speed versus stealth you know um speed uh, load yeah. carry, things like that and that'll affect your gameplay and then you walk outside your house start game and you start looking around and the haptic feedback and everything on your device will give you clues until you see okay over there there's a little blinking yellow light well, that's a little smudge. There's a little spore. And then you follow that to the next broken twig or footprint and, and uh, avoiding booby traps because there's booby traps around. You can play, we, uh, you'll be able to play dogs. You'll be able to play drones. You'll be able to play all this different stuff that you acquire um, as you play through. There's a whole storyline um, for uh, the, the, the story that you're playing. And then you can play against your friends and stuff. You can form guilds and teams. So I have a hunter force team and then somebody else, you know, three streets over is, is an escape and evasion guy. So boom, ping him invite for hunt. And then we actually play against your friends or people you don't know or guilds globally. And another cool thing that we created in this to make sure everybody can play is that if you are physically uh, limited, um, a kid in Dayton, Ohio, who maybe is in a wheelchair or maybe just can't get outside or his mom won't let him, he can on his laptop or his desktop create hunts using Google Maps and Google Street Views in Barcelona or Paris, and people can play his hunt. He can create the booby traps. He can create the trails. He can create the deceptions. He can create all the stuff, and people can play against him. And the online communities, you know, they talk shit and get their points and everything. So it's a whole, <laughs> yeah. whole community of people. Man, that is genius. That that sounds like a whole lot of fun. Like, and that I see kids, adults, everybody enjoying that, you know? and uh, Get people outside. Yeah. Actually, yeah, you're getting your... What is it? The little everyone's wearing the uh, the wristwatch that counts how many steps people yeah, are getting their steps in. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, <laughs> dude, that is get outside. So it's basically the world's most complicated and exciting game of hide and seek played against the computer or with your friends in locations. Yeah, all that is awesome. Escape and evade mobile.com. Everyone check that out. That sounds like a ton of fun. I'm going to have to check it out myself. And, um, and then of course you can just check out Joel Lambert. You can search his name on social media, or you can just go to who I follow and you'll see him right there. Uh, so, but Joel, Hey, once again, thanks for coming on board. Appreciate all your wisdom experiences. It was awesome hanging out with you. Glenn, thank um, you. yeah. And, uh, like I always say, Hey, keep it simple out there because crisis will complicate the rest and we will talk to you next time. Can You Survive This Podcast is a production of Calvary Audio and iHeartMedia. Recorded live from a secure location here in Dallas, Texas. Produced by Brandon Morgan, Jeff Apple, and Clint Emerson. Executive produced by Keegan Rosenberger and Dana Brunetti. For Calvary Audio, I'm Clint Emerson. <laughs>